One of my favorite people to discuss trend following with is Catherine Kaminsky, because she has a great way of simplifying and explaining some of the key concepts in the strategy. In today's short episode, we talk about the phrase crisis alpha and how it may be better to think about these strategies as divergent strategies, because in reality, we don't really need a crisis in order for trend following to do well. Years like 2014 and 2017 are great examples of this and perhaps even Q1 of 2019 as a more recent example. We also touch on convergent strategies, which in my mind to a large extent are short volatility strategies, even if not all investors realize this. I think events from 2018 gave us a taste of what is to come when volatility starts to re-emerge in the markets. Now it's time for you to sit back and relax and enjoy these unique takeaways from my conversation with Catherine. And if you would like to listen to the full conversation, and I hope you do, just go over to toptradersonplug.com forward slash 41 and also forward slash 42. I want to stick with the cover of your book. And especially the last part of the title, The Search for Crisis Alpha. Now, I know you are responsible for coining this term, Crisis Alpha. Um, And I want to talk to you about this. But before I do so, I also want to offer a slight concern that I have about the perception of the role of trend following in a crisis. And it goes something like this. The way I see trend following being positioned... And this is not new. This is something that's happened for for many, many years. It's kind of a hedge against equity markets um, if and when they run into uh, trouble. And that always gets labeled as we're in some kind of crisis. And that's obviously where the crisis alpha is linked to. But there are far more bonds than equities in the portfolios of investors. And I never really hear any debate about trend following as, quote unquote, a hedge or a protection against periods where bonds might run into trouble. And, you know, especially in a time where bond prices are, to say the least, very high, um, you know, how do you... How do you think about that? And and is there a concern that when we hear the word crisis alpha and trend following, that people automatically think that this is relating to equities? Yes, I mean we we do we actually take that point up some in in the book. Okay, and um, I think you know maybe if I sort of step back and talk about where crisis alpha came from, where this original paper came from to kind of give some contextual reference for that. Um, I was at a meeting with uh, Hans Folian, who's the CIO of AP2. Mm -hmm. And Hans turned to me and said, I don't understand. Tell me why this, why does this work Mm -hmm. during this period of time? And I stepped back and I mean, everybody knew that trend following tends to do well during during a crisis period. Sure. And I just was so irritated that I couldn't answer that question <laughs> that I actually thought about it for some period of time. And I went back and did some analysis and did some research. And I said, my goodness, you know, this is pretty incredible. On certain days, 
when things are really bad for equity. And I'll get back to the other markets. Sure, sure. Um, things are, something is happening. Mm. And it's not just happening in equities. Most of it is happening outside of equities. Right. And it's not just happening in commodities. It, it can happen in, you know, rates or FX or here or there. And I started looking at these days where there's these big moves in equities and I found that, and this is going to be a geeky point, that the days during these periods of time actually first order stochastically dominated the other days. Now, mm -hmm. what that means is that the cumulative distribution of these particular days is actually before the, the distribution of the days outside. And right. This is Break that down. <laughs> Break that down for me, please. Okay. Let's try it again. Okay. <laughs> so imagine I'm gonna, this is going to be. Uh, I'm imagine I'm trying to explain this to an MBA to one of my MBA students. Do that, please. So okay. Um, so if I take the days mm -hmm. where equity markets go down, yeah, and I look at a simulated trampling system, sure. And I take um, something which is called the cumulative distribution function. Mm -hmm. So how that works is you think of it as building up. When you build a cumulative distribution function, it's mm -hmm. as if you take the, the values and you put them into a bag. Right. And so you start collecting them. Yeah. So if something has a big flat tail, mm -hmm. you're going to see a lot of mass on the left side, mm -hmm. and then it's going to grow up less slowly. Sure. And then, um, so what you can do actually in, in, the, in one particular statistical test you can do is you can look at if if one dominates the other. Right. And what that means is that the distribution, the cumulative distribution, is farther to the left. Mm -hmm. was the one that dominates to the right, and then you have another to the left. Sure. So if you have two distributions, one that is to the right of the other completely, then it's considered first-order okay. domination. Okay. And if you take stocks and bonds, this relationship doesn't hold. Okay. Because they cross. Right. And why is this the case? It's because stocks have fat tails, mm -hmm. which means that they, they end up collecting more of these worst scenarios first right. before bonds. But then they have much better performance later. So their distributions actually cross. Okay. So it makes sort of like a, a loop. Mm -hmm. But when I looked at trend following returns in a certain, some of the sort of daily analysis that I looked at based on a sort of a filtering rule that I used, I could find periods where there was first order stochastic dominance. And I have basically never, see, very rarely seen that in financial data. Okay. And I said, this is just, there's something here okay. that's just different. And um, I mean, so I thought, okay, these particular moments, something is happening where these strategies are adapting to the scenario of a financial, sort of a, a crisis scenario in a way that that is unexpected. Yeah. And then if you go back and you think about the efficient markets hypothesis, futures markets should not be, should be so competitive that you can't make money, mm. right? Because I mean, they're obviously the most liquid, the, you know, sort of the most efficient. Mm. And then I thought, wait a minute, maybe, it's actually the case that they're a little bit like Buffett, that they, they are liquid when others are not. Right. So this actual, the fact that they are so liquid and adaptable and in futures is what gives them an advantage over the others. Mm -hmm. 
in these scenarios. And that's where I said, okay, so what are they getting at this period of time when, when things are sort of a mess? Well, they're getting alpha mm-hmm. because they're finding opportunities that are up and beyond the sort of normal risk measures. Mm. So I said, aha, now I have a buzzword. Right. It's crisis alpha. Sure. So, um, and the concept of crisis alpha came out of that entire story. It mm. originated from a, a question that someone asked me that I couldn't answer. Mm. And then I went back and did a research report on it, which I actually have never, <laughs> never published. But then I wrote a short article mm-hmm. for the CME group sure. to complement this research paper, uh, which was meant to sort of be for the entire industry. Mm. And that was the original paper, which is called... Uh, it's called a short guide to investing in managed futures in, in search of crisis alpha, a sure. short guide to investing sure. in managed futures. Sure. That was in 2011. And um, so now going back to your point about bonds and, um, and commodities, that's something that really bothered me as well mm-hmm. because I kept getting that question all the time. So um, in the book, we talked about crisis alpha for commodity indices. We talk about bond crisis alpha. We talk about commodity crisis alpha. But over the course of writing this book, I actually have moved more towards a, a new idea. Okay. And this is the idea of divergence. Right. And what we do in the book is we explain that um, trend-following strategies are long divergence. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you know, the most divergent moment in, in history is always crisis, right. wherever it comes from. So, yeah, the crisis alpha is part of that. That's extreme divergence. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the story is a little bit more clear to me now that it's really about being long divergence in markets. And divergence can be driven by many things. Yeah. The reason that equity is the central point is that most of us have a home bias to equity markets. Um, our focal point from an emotional standpoint are equity markets. So right. they have a little bit more impact mm-hmm. on the psychology of the general marketplace. And that's why they can be more extreme, but they're in no way uh, the only thing that drives divergence. Sure. I want to talk about sort of the convergent and and divergent strategies and i'd love for you to explain this um but but i have to say i mean i think certainly that many investors are perhaps not uh and maybe we don't have enough data but um it'll be interesting to see how trend following uh, may actually also be very, very useful in a period where we get a massive crisis in the uh, bond markets, which on a personal note, I would say looks very likely in the next few years. Um, but take, let's take it back to the story about divergent and convergent strategies. And, and let's um, be sure that we're mindful that not all listeners are familiar with these terms. So maybe you can break it down in your usual good um, explanatory way. Okay, so, I mean, if you step back for a second and you think about risk as a concept, Mm -hmm. risk is really sort of what we face every day in every aspect of our life. And it's sort of a dynamic process. And how we handle risk depends on both what our frame of reference is as an individual, Mm -hmm. um, our experiences over the past, and also our beliefs. Right. So... 
if we think about that, those three things come together to give us an idea about which type of strategy we're going to use mm. in any risk situation, whether it's personal or financial. Um, so convergent risk-taking strategies are used when we believe that the world is somewhat stable, mm -hmm. knowable, and understandable, and quantifiable. And many, many risks in life actually are somewhat uh, convergent sure. or quantifiable. And when we believe that the world is like that, then we tend to apply one set of strategies, convergent risk-taking strategies. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other Can hand... Can you give me an example of a convergent uh, yes. strategy? Sure. <laughs> um, so a good... I'll, I'll get there in a second. So let me okay. explain the two first uh, separately. And then I'm going to show you some examples of both... I'll explain some, some practical examples and also sure. a trading strategy. Perfect. So the difference between convergent and divergent is that we all know that, I mean, Taleb has made this very famous with this, mm. you know, black swan, is that life is about risk, but it's also about uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So uncertainty is when the context, the, the conditions and situations, you know, you're facing are unknown to you and unquantifiable. Sure. So when we feel that the world is governed by uncertainty, we have a very different approach to how we handle risk-taking. So let me explain the difference here and give you an example. Sure. So if you're a convergent risk-taker, you have a particular view. Let's say that you view that equity markets are going to go up, as an example. Sure. If equity markets go up, you tend to take profit on that. Mm. When they go down, you'll tend to do the opposite. You'll say, wait a minute, I know that equity markets go up over the long run. This looks like a buying opportunity. Mm. I should actually double my bet <laughs> or at least hold my bet and sure. not sell. So in that sense, over time, when you're convergent, when you win, it reaffirms to you what you believed. Right. When you lose, it actually goes against your fundamental belief structure, mm -hmm. which is sort of a, a threat in some sense, causing you in some sense to often reaffirm your beliefs. Now, divergent is the opposite. If you imagine a scenario where you have no idea if A, B, or C is going to do better than the others, mm. what you'll do is you'll invest or put a small amount of investment in each of them. Mm. And if one of them starts to do well, you'll say, hmm, this could be it. I don't know, but <laughs> let's, you know... A could be the one. Sure. So you'll double your bet on the thing that's going well. And every time you lose, you don't have any prior sort of expectations about a particular position or a particular view. So you'll mm -hmm. cut your losses. Sure. So those two philosophical views are, they're very different. Yeah. And for those of you who know any, I mean, you yourself being a trend-following manager, sure. you know that trend-following managers in general are divergent. When they're asked what their view is about the dollar, they may give a, a view, but they don't, they would change their view as soon as their indicators <laughs> said something else. Yeah. Um, global macro investors are not the same. And same with, uh, you know, value investors. They believe in the value of a particular company. Sure. And it really depends whether they work, if the world is actually governed by risk or uncertainty. 
So um, let me give you asked for some examples. Let me give some examples outside of finance. Yeah, and also great. some examples in finance. Okay. Um, one of my favorite sort of analogies is actually social networking. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, I have a lot of Swedish friends who I think in Sweden it's a sort of very focused on having a good close network of friends sure. over a long horizon. And if you're socially a convergent risk taker, that means that you find a small group of people that you know, that you believe in, mm. and you nurture that those relationships mm. and bringing in some new but not as many new. Sure. A divergent risk taker socially actually is one of those social butterflies mm. who goes from table to table <laughs> knowing everybody and waiting until the next big opportunity comes. Yeah. So they cut their losses very well. They have very good strategies for that. <laughs> they find a way to go to the next table very easily. Sure. Um, so that's an example in sort of your personal life. Mm. But another good example that I have used with some consultants and, and with other investors that I think is a good one is the world of private equity. Okay. In the world of private equity, there are two, two common streams. One is venture capital and the other is sort of the, the more mature leveraged buyout um, stage investing right. for private equity. The predominant strategy type in the mature world of private equity is actually more of a convergent approach, mm-hmm. which means that you find the companies that you believe in, that you believe are undervalued, and you invest a lot in those companies. Right. And you do a lot of the fundamental analysis to sort of confirm your beliefs and make sure that you're doing the right prudent thing. Sure. On the other hand, the world of venture capital and entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. there's so much uncertainty. Yeah. So what successful um, venture capitalists do is they go out with a small amount of initial investments and they invest across a basket of many interesting and possibly exciting entrepreneurs. They do analysis, but they just can't do the same type of analysis of cash flows and mm. potential earnings that their friends in the LBOs do mm. because it's just not possible. Sure. So in that case where you're dealing with risk and uncertainty, things that are hard to predict, it's much better to put small investments, which means you limit your losses on the downside hoping that one of these new startups will be the next big LinkedIn mm. or Skype or um, Facebook. Sure. And the profile of these is very consistent with what we see in, the, in, the, in our world, which is a trend-following world. Trend-following is just a systematic example of a divergent risk-taking strategy. Yeah, absolutely. I think you may be mentioned this earlier and I think it's an important point because often people believe that trend following by definition is just a long volatility strategy. But what you're really saying is it's long divergent. Yes. I mean, of course, divergence and volatility is somewhat related, but it's not the same. Yes, divergence and volatility are correlated. Yeah. Uh, They're positively correlated maybe at 20%. Mm. The reason is that If you have, so I was just giving a a talk about this recently for for the CME. And what I said was that if you have low volatility, you tend to have low divergence. Mm, Um, But if you have high 
non-directional volatility. So that means sort of where volatility is going, where things are going up and down and up and down, but they're yeah. not really going anywhere. Mm. This is actually a nightmare yeah. for a divergent trend following strategy. So <laughs> there's no divergence in that. It's actually low divergence. But if you have high directional volatility, then you have high divergence. Yeah. So divergence is more if you take, it's basically the amount of discernible trend in mm. price. So if you take the sort of over a horizon and you divide by the amount of movements, you're actually taking the volatility out. Mm. So if you have lots of volatility, the divergence is really the signal to noise ratio in prices. So when there's lots of volatility, there's lots of noise. Sure. And therefore, divergence is not, is not very high. That's it for now. And remember, if you want to listen to the full conversation with Catherine and me, please go to toptradersonplug.com forward slash 41 and forward slash 42. Now, if you enjoyed this short, insightful clip from a past episode of the show, then you will love the free book I'm giving away right now. It's called The Many Flavors of Trend Following. It includes some of my best insights on this perhaps the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. And you can get your free copy right now by going to toptradersonplug.com forward slash book to start your own journey today. And if you want more from Catherine and me, then of course you can just go to the website toptradersonplug.com and there you'll see a little ad for a book we wrote together. And if you pay the small amount of $7, Uh, you can get a copy of the book called How to Master Manage Futures, even if you have never traded before. Before you go, please subscribe to the podcast and the YouTube channel, where I'll be back next week with more exciting and engaging conversations. Until next time, take care.